Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Charles Liu. You, of course, should call me Chuck. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to say hello to our co-host, Alan Liu. Alan, hi. Hello. Anything exciting going on today? Um, I got some morel mushrooms at the farmer's market. It was great. Ooh, ooh, morel <laughs> mushrooms. <laughs> Those are rare. They look like brains and stuff, right? Yeah, they're they're pretty wonky shaped. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, our special guest today, Dr. Andrew Maynard at Arizona State University. Andrew, hello and welcome. Thank you for being on the Lunarverse today. Well, thank you for having me. This is, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, it's great. Um, you are a, a remarkable uh, seer into the future. And I don't <laughs> say that lightly because in my opinion, the, the word futurist is greatly overused. But I what agree. I would like, yeah, what I would like to do is to, to give you an opportunity to help educate us on the things that actually do come into the realm of science from our speculations about the future. And then we'll kind of wander sure. a little bit into speculation, which is always fun because, of course, imagination is at least as important as knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. And I cannot let our conversation pass without at least mentioning a little bit those cool figures over your left shoulder uh, ah, uh, yes. who are near are. and dear to my heart. Uh, wonderful folks. <laughs> those of you who aren't seeing the camera, uh, there's a blue shirt. There's a gold shirt and there's a red shirt. And that's enough clue for what we're going to be talking about later. Andrew, let's start right away with uh, the cool science that you did way back in the olden days. Um, right. Now, you and I are contemporaries, but we've never intersected professionally because I have my head stuck in the stars, whereas you're yes. solidly on terra firma or more accurately in the atmosphere. So start right. first by talking to us about aerosol science and the stuff that you oh, did that i know i know a lot of people like goodness, aerosols man. no but really <laughs> that is going a stuff. long way back <laughs> we breathe this stuff andrew i want to know because like i breathe right and right, i'm right. really interested in knowing uh, what is it that we're breathing that's good and bad and all that yeah so so when you're breathing in you're breathing in so many minute particles which of course your lungs have to sort of deal with and filter out and get rid of and hopefully they don't cause any harm but yeah my I guess it depends how far back you go. So I mean, I started off in physics, but my PhD was actually in using electron microscopy to analyze these airborne minute particles. So an aerosol is just a, a bunch of particles that are floating around mm -hmm. in the air. Uh -huh. um, some of them can be fairly large. Some of them can be incredibly, incredibly small. Um, and of course, the danger is if you're breathing them in, um, it's not the sort of stuff you really want in your lungs. And so a lot of my work was looking at how you actually characterize these, how you sample them, how you measure them, how you try and work out what is really nasty versus what we can actually deal with. Yeah. So obviously, okay. the thing that's on our minds most is asbestos, right? Because right. we right. know that that it's all throughout all of our houses. Does that count as, as some of these aerosols to which you refer? It, well, when it's airborne, it does. I mean, of course, most of the asbestos around us is actually fixed in things. So it's actually fixed in a paint or a tile or concrete or something like that. But when those asbestos fibers are released into the air, um, they then enter a state where it's possible to breathe them in. And that's where we need to begin to worry. Um, in fact, asbestos is a really cool, interesting material because it has so many amazing properties. It is incredibly mm -hmm. resistant heat it's incredibly strong you can weave it into clothes um, and all of that's fantastic 
except when those fibers become airborne and become aerosols. Um, mm. And the problem then is you get them into your lungs and because they stick around a long time and your lungs can't get rid of them because they're too long and too thin, they end up oh. causing a lot of damage. Um, yeah. And if you're really unlucky, they end up causing cancer. And oh, death. man. Oof. Yeah. Yike. So that, that's the scary part of it. Do asbestos fibers count as nanoparticles, Andrew? Uh, So yeah, so nanoparticles is a bit of a misnomer. So people talk Uh about nanoparticles, meaning really small particles. And the official definition is smaller than 100 nanometers in diameter, though it's a somewhat arbitrary definition. Some asbestos fibers are actually thinner than that. So yeah, you could call them nanoparticles, apart from the fact that they're usually much, much longer than that. So mm-hmm. they're nano in two dimensions, but not three. Aha. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So almost, certainly... almost nanoparticles, two thirds nanoparticles. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. We're, we're a certain uh, respiratory uh, little virus particle that we're all worried about these days be a nanoparticle as well. What? Yeah, the virus those, that those, shall not those... be named? Oh, no. <laughs> the... <laughs> And I was just about to, I was just about to call it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's I actually I'm just trying to think. Yeah, so individual um, COVID, I'm going to say it, COVID viruses would be in that nanoscale region, but quite often they'll be attached to something else, or they'll be in a droplet which somebody has exhaled, exhaled, which probably isn't in the nano region. But that actually doesn't matter so much from a health perspective, because as long as those fine droplets can be inhaled and get into your deep lung, and that means they're smaller than about five micrometers and so in diameter, they can still do a lot of It's much bigger than the nanometers, right? That's exactly it, yes. I see. Now, so for those of us who don't deal regularly in micrometers and nanometers, can we get a scale of about, like... How big exactly is a micrometer? Yeah, so start with something that you know, which is a human hair. So you can, I mean, if you're lucky enough to have hair, you can (laughs) pluck one out. A human hair is between 50 micrometers and 100 micrometers in diameter. So it's it's on the edge of what you can see with the visible eye, but you can actually see that. Okay. So say that that hair is 100 micrometers in diameter. Now go 100 times smaller than that, you get to one micrometer you go a thousand times smaller than that, you get to one nanometer. Um, So when you're talking about nanometer-sized particles, they're somewhere between a thousand and ten thousand or so times smaller or thinner than the width of your human hair. Oh, okay. Wow. And yet those objects of such tiny size are being talked about to run machinery, be robots. I mean, tell us about this. (laughs) So there's there's a lot of speculation. If you look at science fiction, and not just science fiction, there has been some really creative um, engineers and scientists talking about this and talking about the idea that maybe we can create robots at this nanometer scale. So robots that are just a little bigger than just atoms and molecules. And the idea is, wouldn't it be cool if you had these little nanoscopically small robots that can be programmed to do different things. So for instance, you could inject them into your body and they could swim around your body and find viruses that you don't like and get rid of them or find cells that need repairing and do the repairs there or build bones up or do all sorts of things. So that's the science fiction side of nanotechnology. It's never going to work. Let me just oh. say that. <laughs> but actually, let me put a caveat there. So there is one way in which this works. Okay. But it's called biology. So we, oh, and this is uh... where the inspiration comes. This is what biology is. Biology is full of these incredible 
biological molecules that behave yeah. like biological machines. I and mean, you look at DNA, I mean, that's maybe sort of the ultimate sort of biological data set. And then you have all these biological model uh, molecules that zip up and down DNA and doing things with it, interpreting it, mending it, and um, sort of um, basically changing it. And so these are like microscopic machines. But we know that biology has managed to fix this sort of nanoscale machine problem, uh -huh. and it looks like biology. If we try and do it a different way, we just can't do it, because oh, down at that level of atoms and molecules, you've got to have something that looks like biology to work. So the physics of biology is what we can use to make nanorobots. That's it. It kind is. Of. Um, and, and, and of course, if you talk to a biotechnologist, they'll say, yeah, we've been doing this forever. And you nanotechnologists, you're so new on the scene, but we've already. <laughs> That's really interesting. Of course, when I think in my Star Trek, Star Wars, science fiction world, when you talk about nanotechnology, immediately we must think of the Borg. Of course. Star Trek. Yes. Right. An entire <laughs> species that have melded technological and biological information, primarily powered by these nanoparticles, nanobots that you inject right. into a hapless victim and then turns them into some right. Take drone. them over, yes. Yeah. Now, so that you're telling me I'm safe from. I, you, you are safe from. Uh, but again, I'll go back to biology. So the mechanical side, creating something that looks like a human-sized robot, but down at the size of cells and below, we just can't do that. The physics just don't work at that scale. Yeah. But this is what biology does. I mean, you think about what a virus does. Um, a virus is this biological nanobot that gets into the body and invades cells and replicates and expands and takes over your body. And actually, sometimes these, um, whether they're viruses or whether they're other forms of biological entity, they can actually change how you behave. So Amazing. it's actually remarkably Borg-like, except it's wow. biology rather than nanotech. Mm. <laughs> well, Alan, do we have a question like related to this topic uh, that yeah. we could just get <laughs> we, into? Turns out we do have that actually, um, which is very fortunate um, and partly by by design. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have uh, we have a question. Actually, it's from uh, from Stacy on our production team. Oh, hey, Stacy. Cool. We, we have some very fun uh, sci-fi fans on the production team, as you might imagine. Um, and the question is, how plausible is it that nanites from Star Trek The Next Generation could become real? So I, I don't think they will. Um, I, this is actually where the science gets really intriguing and, and really serious. So back in the 1980s, um, there was a, a really um, sharp um, scientist and engineer called Eric Drexler who wrote a book called Engines of Creation, where okay. he speculated that maybe we could creates, um, he didn't call them the nanites, but he he talked about these molecular machines, which are almost yeah. like the precursors of um, Star Trek type nanites. Um, and he speculated we could actually do this if we start putting things together atom by atom and essentially coding in atoms. And he basically said that if we had these assemblers that took an atom at a time and put stuff together, a little bit like working with Legos um, wow. or something like yeah. that, create these machines. So in principle, we could create nanites. Wow. Um, unfortunately, though, it comes back to this, this reality that physics works in different ways at the nanoscale to how it works at the microscopic mm. scale. So mm. it's, it's very, very hard to do that. And this is why I don't think we'll ever see the science fiction form of nanobots or nanites. Okay. Okay. But that said, 
even asking those questions is such an intriguing thing that it stimulates <laughs> yeah. people to think about all sorts of things that true. then drive the sort of science we do. Oh, that's true. I, and I have to bring in one more question, which is coming up really soon. Um, I, as the audience knows, love comic books. I don't know if you are a big fan of uh, the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk and Marvel Comics and so forth. Mm -hmm. But um, it turns out, that uh, in one storyline that was established 40 plus years ago, so no spoilers, everybody. No, don't worry. Mm -hmm. Not going to give away something. Uh, Bruce Banner, uh, the person who becomes the Incredible Hulk when very angry, uh, was compelled to give somebody a blood transfusion to save her life. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that person became the She-Hulk. In other words, right. that blood transfusion, that genetic material, whatever it was, <laughs> that turned him into the Hulk, turned her into the She-Hulk. But here's here, yeah. this is the, the thing I have to ask you, who knows, or at least knows something about this, is it actually possible for something like externally introduced mutated material yeah. to create a whole same effect in another person? Yeah. Um... Slightly edge at the edge of plausibility. Oh, really? But yeah, but there are some interesting things here. Okay. Um, okay. I, so the interesting things are, yeah, I, normally that won't happen. I mean, if you take some of yeah. your biological material and shove it into somebody else, um, there are a lot of things that do happen, but suddenly sort of developing the sorts of abilities that came from the donor, that doesn't happen. I, otherwise, every time you had a kidney transplant or a lung transplant or a heart transplant, um, you'd have some really weird stuff happening. Ah. But we we know I was still beginning. We're still trying to understand how um, DNA expression and interpretation actually works and DNA transfer. So, for instance, we know that with um, bacteria, they're yeah. transferring DNA between them all the time, um, and that actually leads to changes in in these bacteria and what they can do. So. In principle, it's possible for this sort of thing to happen with higher order organisms like us. But it also means we could actually engineer it to happen. So oh, this wow. is the really weird, cool stuff. In fact, two weird, cool things. Ooh. One deals with um, CRISPR technology, which is gene oh, editing yes. technology. Yeah. Um, so gene editing technology like CRISPR um, just allows you to take the genome of an organism and do a, a search and replace effectively. So you can find a particular segment of that and either snip it out or put another segment in. So you can begin to edit that genetic code. Wow. But as soon as you can do that, you can do some really cool hacking stuff. So you can put um, a segment of DNA into a strand which has the instructions to do more CRISPR editing. So now you can create a strand oh, of DNA my that has the instructions to edit other bits of DNA. Um, and this has been used in things called gene drives, where you can actually change um, the genetic uh, makeup of a whole whole species by sort of putting these sort of hacks out there. Oh, man. But there's no reason why, I mean, in the far distant um, future, you couldn't do that with with humans. So you edit a human. So they've got these little snippets of DNA that are actually programmed to reprogram other bits of DNA. And then imagine swapping that into somebody else's body. You've now got the basis for their genetic sequences to be modified by this little piece of code that's been inserted Whoa, into them. Man. And that's where it gets really weird. I mean, nobody's doing that. And I, I can't imagine anybody's going to do it for a long time. Jeez, but in principle, yeah. it's possible. Wow. Wow. Alan, is that even legal? I mean, to gene drive? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I know. I've, I've heard people talking about how, like, 
you know, that that we might want to do this with like certain species of mosquito to like make them right, not yes. able to harbor malaria or something like that. Yeah, um, people are but, actually actively experimenting with this. So, for instance, down in Florida, they're looking at, at experiments where they release gene-edited mosquitoes um, in a former gene drive, which is designed to, to crash the population. But, yeah, people are, are actively talking about how you change whole populations. So another speculative thing with mosquitoes, actually. Imagine you could insert um, one of these little genetic hacks that once it gets out into the wild, it, it's, it changes a particular species of mosquito so that they can no longer carry diseases. So you don't kill the species, you just fundamentally change the species. And that's wow. actually possible. Amazing. Wow. Let, let's shift a little bit to this point about life because I'd like to talk a little bit about your thoughts on our search for life on other planets. Mm. And, and yeah. more specifically, uh, what I know about your thoughts on this area has to do with risk, like the risks of finding life. Like what are what are the good and the bad of finding extraterrestrial life? Because someone like Stephen Hawking, for example, right, or Elon Musk or, or mm -hmm. other various celebrity people have, have made their opinions known about, is it a good idea even to talk about? Right. Um, and right. contacting people. Should we hide our signal? Right. Um, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about that aspect of things from your scholarly perspective? Yeah, and th and this gets so speculative. So as you say, quite a my quite a bit of my work is rooted in in risk and how we think about risk and how we make sense of it. And one of the things we okay. know with risk is that our brains just aren't able to wrap themselves around incredibly speculative risks where we have no data to work mm -hmm. from. So when yeah. you're talking about um, either extraterrestrial um, organisms and entities or even extraterrestrial intelligence and starting to think about what are the risks versus what are the benefits, um, we have almost nowhere to go other than science fiction and speculation with those oh, conversations. Mm. Um, having said that, I mean, if you look at sort of how this, this plays out, on one hand, you've got people like me that just get really excited about the possibility of there being something else out there. I've no idea whether we'll find anything else out <laughs> about sort of yeah. other sort of either even evidence of other biological entities out in the, the solar system or the galaxy. But even the possibility is exciting to me. Agreed. So I'm, you know, there's this part of my brain, which is like the, the crazy scientist who says, we've got to do this just because it's really cool. But then there's the other half, the risk side, that says, hold on a minute. Um, what are the dangers here? Hmm. Um, and the dangers sort of fall into categories of... Um, either something that's a, a biological entity or, or something that, that mimics biology um, that is harmful to us. I mean, it's the equivalent of if you suddenly come across a new virus and because you've got no protection against it, um, it causes a lot of harm. What is the possibility of that happening? Right. Um, the chances are pretty low because for something to harm us in that way, it would have to have the same basic biology as us. It would have to be ah. built on DNA in the same way, um, which would mean that either it had to have evolved in exactly the same way, uh, remote from Earth, unless we all come from the same source of DNA, which is a, another sort of hypothesis. <laughs> Season um, seven of Star Trek the Next Generation. The it, it, it always comes we'll back to Star that. Trek, yes. Uh. Right, right. Um, but if it has a different biology, the chances are that we would just be so incompatible that it, it's not likely to interfere with us. 
But then you get to the idea of um, future intel for intelligences, other intelligences, right. and this fear yeah. that if we make ourselves known to another intelligence, they will come and obliterate us um, in a very warlike way. Um, yeah, I worry about that hypothesis for a couple of reasons. One is it's a very human-centric hypothesis. It's basically, <laughs> it's our ego screaming out and saying, surely <laughs> anything else in the universe is going to be just as bad as we are. Oh. And, I, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that, that that's very naive to assume that just because we can see the worst of humanity that any other intelligence is going to be just as bad. But there's another sort of more serious part of this, and it's the idea that any intelligence out there that has survived long enough to be able to not only communicate, but, but travel across interstellar distances has got to have gone through this, this process in evolution where they realize they've got to think and act differently in order to survive and thrive as a species. Uh, and mm. the hypothesis goes that they've got to have got beyond that point where they just try and destroy everybody and everything, and they're going to be a far more benign intelligence. So, um, and again, who knows which of these <laughs> hypotheses are, are right, but if that's the case, and that makes a lot of sense to me, the chances are that we're going to be far more dangerous to another intelligence than they are to us. Oh, well, Alan, I think you wrote a, a, a science fiction story about that not that long ago on precisely I, this point. Oh, no, it was a long time ago. But, <laughs> and I'm not the first person ever to have written a story about this, but when I was in like middle school, I, I won some story contest about this. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. A bunch of alien invaders come, but they're actually us invading somebody else. Spoiler. For I like that. Six great science fiction story oh, yes. contest story. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think... Um, I'm also, I feel like, like, if you look at Earth, like, maybe the odds that we just sort of accidentally get destroyed seem, you know, or, or get destroyed as part of like an intergalactic highway project, like Dr. Adams, <laughs> yeah. And you, and you bring it to, um, yeah, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy. Yeah, sort of, I mean, there is also that, that hypothesis that to any sufficiently advanced intelligence, we would just be like insects or ants or something and yeah. they either wouldn't think twice about stamping us out or they wouldn't even notice um <laughs> yeah. i don't know I, I i'm not sure how far you can push that but it's you know it's interesting thinking about thing these things but you know i would like to find out rather than just hiding i think that makes sense that's a great point that's a great because you know if, even if we hide they probably could find us anyway so <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> well you know all these ufo sightings I oh. <laughs> <laughs> alan do we have a question uh from people, listeners, uh, viewers who that have to do with this sort of space type stuff and, and distance. Yeah, things. space, a little bit, you know, transporting oneself oh, over yeah. long distances. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we have a question from Benji, which is, will transporting slash beaming ever be possible? Almost definitely not. But oh. as always, there's a caveat. Um, okay. Yeah, so I, again, going back to Star Trek, the idea that you can take somebody's sort of molecular makeup and you can sort of pull it all apart and sort of beam it somewhere and then put it all back together again. Um, it is incredibly hard to see how that would work um, for a number of reasons. I mm. First and foremost, it relies on the assumption that who you are or who I am 
is just a collection of molecules, nothing else, which oh. is probably true. Apart from the fact there's a value add, as soon as you put together molecules in a certain way to create um, an animal, an organism, or an intelligence, yeah. um, they're even down to how those molecules are put together and their, their history and how that's embedded into their structure becomes incredibly yeah. important. And so if you just think about sort of taking everything apart and putting it back together again, the chances are you'll miss something unless you are mm. unbelievably precise down to the probably the subatomic level in terms of how you put things together. Oh. Um, but then the question is, how would you even do that? Um, I see, yeah. But but here's here's an interesting thing. So, so yes, I'm just sort of disintegrating something or pulling it apart, beaming it, and putting it back together again. I, th there's, there's no physics that allows you to do that. But you can do something, or you will be able to do something that gets a little bit close, certainly with inanimate objects. And that's, okay. um, and th this is actually blindingly simple, but it's still mind-blowing to me, that uh, with digital systems these days, you can effectively digitize something. Um, and once okay. the information about something is in the cyber domain, you can then transport it as far as you want at the speed of light. And then if you have something at the other mm. end that can reconstruct it, you've got something that's a little bit similar. So you do that, you can do that with 3D scanners and 3D printers, which I, sounds quite okay. boring, but actually it's the beginning of doing something interesting, taking a physical oh. object in one place and transporting it to another place. But now right. here, this is going to get back to biology. Now imagine this. You have um, a DNA sequencer. So you have um, the DNA structure or base code of an organism. You sequence it okay. in one place. You upload that to the cyber domain, the metaverse, or whatever. And you transport yeah. it somewhere else. It may be around the corner. It may be thousands of miles away. It may be to another planet. And then you have the ability to reconstruct that genetic oh, sequence wow. wherever that signal appears. Now, that is a form of transportation. It's not the, quite the same as Star Trek, but you're able yeah. to take an organism from one place, digitize it, and then reconstruct it somewhere Oh, else. man. I love that idea. That is so cool. The, it's the end up with like a clone, right? Yeah, it, it would be like an identical thing. The only thing is that they would right. not be existing in time at the same time. It would be all that transport time things. So. Th that, that's, that, that's right. And depending how far away it is. But yes, you really push this out. I mean, imagine that we were beginning to look at um, interstellar travel. So you yes. take, I take, I take a bacterium, an E. coli, the sort of thing that, that exists in your gut. Um, you fully sequence that and send that signal out along with a set of instructions on how to, to make the DNA replicator. As soon as it gets to that, that point I, tens, hundreds, thousands of light years away, in principle, that could be reconstructed and that biological entity could be reconstructed. And that, to me, is mind-blowing because that is a form of transportation. <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing. But as you say, in different times, yes, right, because you're right. looking in now at, at thousands plus years. Right. And so if that E. coli had like a personality or had memories or something, <laughs> I, it would right, not yes. transport, and, right? No, it's that's just the biological structure. So it, it would have to form a whole new set of memories. I, you know, unless somebody sort of cracks what exactly sort of memory and consciousness are. And maybe wow. they will. Maybe we can beam that as Might well happen. at some point. So it wouldn't be the same thing, but it would be a replica. Yeah. Wow. That's that's some cool thing to think about. We uh, we have one more topic's worth of time today, and I mm -hmm. hope we have many, many more times in the future to talk, Andrew, about this. But the topic I want to talk about specifically might be a little bit navel-gazing, but I'd like to bring it up because uh, in 
2018, I think it was, you actually published a, an academic article about how to be a successful YouTube person as an academic. Um, yeah. Tell us, how is it that we become successful <laughs> as an academics on YouTube? If, if if only I knew. Yes. Um, <laughs> so actually, no, there, there is a backstory here. Okay. Um, okay. And it, it's got a couple of strands. So one of the things that I've done for many, many years now is look at how um, people like myself and, and yourself can make knowledge accessible to as many people as possible. I, we know stuff as scientists. We don't know everything, but we know some pretty cool stuff. How do you actually get that over to people in a format and in a way that not only they understand, but they can get excited about, they can actually use? And of course, we're recording a podcast. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. But back um, in the, the mid-2000s, um, YouTube was emerging as one of those channels which was incredibly powerful for this sort of education. And I call it um, sort of casual learning. It's the fact that when you want to learn how to do something, you typically go to YouTube to find out how to do it. So I asked yeah. myself, as an academic, can I somehow make the stuff that I know available to others and accessible to them on YouTube? Now, the trick is that because people decide what they watch or don't watch on YouTube, it's no good me just sort of sitting in front of a camera and pontificating, I have to make stuff that people actually want to watch. Um, and I discovered yeah. um, in doing this, I had two major problems. Number one, I have no talent. I may be an academic, <laughs> but when it comes to videos, I have no talent. Secondly, I have no time because, as you know, being an academic, you've got classes, you've got grading, you've got research, you've got a gazillion other things. Yeah. And so I set myself the challenge. Can I make successful YouTube videos with no talent and no time. And it turned out I actually wasn't, I was reasonably successful with this. So I, um, I started the channel Risk Bites. Um, mm -hmm. So these are little videos all about risk, which is one of the things that I, that I study. And they're designed to help people make sense of the sorts of risks and risk decisions that they come across. Um, and it's, you know, it hasn't been hugely successful, but for an academic channel, it's been really successful. Um, last count, we're going up for, I think, 4 million um, hours worth of viewing or 4 million wow. views it is across all the videos. Wow. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper about it. And basically, the paper was focused on academics who actually want to make a difference. They want to help other people to make smart decisions in their lives and to do the things they want to do just by making the things that they know accessible. And I said, well, if that's you, this is a way that you can do it using YouTube. And this is how you need to think about it. That's fantastic. All right. That sounds like summer reading for us all. Right. We, <laughs> yes. we could all use, not, not just for YouTube, but just even talking to our students. I mean, see, I, I uh, think that's it. And, and the key here is, is how, how do you empower others to do really cool stuff? Andrew Maynard, Dr. Andrew Maynard from Arizona State University. Uh, this has not been enough time for us to go through even the smallest fraction of what we want to talk about. But thank you so much for coming here today with us. Thank you for joining us. And we hope that this is just the first of many, many more times where we get together and talk about cool Oh, stuff. I'm looking forward to getting back. This was a blast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alan, thank yeah. you so much, as always, for your co-hosting. Much appreciated. Yeah, you're very welcome. And for all of you, thank you for being a part of the Lunaverse.